0: Hello, and welcome to Studio 550's Learning to Fly, the podcast that explores how prominent figures in music, sports, politics, and entertainment overcame various obstacles to compete, triumph, and eventually dominate. I'm your host, Bruce Mittman, President CEO of Mitcom, full-service ad agency with clients located around the world. I'm also the CEO and operating partner founder of Community Broadcasters, a radio group which purchased and operated over 40 signals, in three states and eight markets. Path to these leadership positions was not a straight line. Past 40 plus years, I've been an entry level account person, an ad agency director, a rock radio station manager, and radio network president. I've marketed products and built brands in the ski, automotive, medical, fast food, and retail industries throughout the US and the world. I've purchased hundreds of millions of dollars in media and I've built and supported entire professional college sports media networks. Beyond that, I've spearheaded the initial marketing for the opening of two new convention centers, one in Las Vegas and the other in Boston, and guided the team which marketed Comdex, the largest trade show in the world. On a personal note, I've traveled to over 40 countries around the world and experienced everything those diverse cultures had to offer. My journey has been an interesting one. I've had plenty of successes and tons of failures along the way and got a great perspective on what drives the best of the best because it's the same thing that drives me. Join me as we learn what it takes to win. Our first guest today is a rock star in the truest sense of the word. Paul Geary is the co-founder and drummer for the legendary Boston band Extreme. After a successful 10-year run, he left his band to become a manager. And among his first signings was an unknown Boston metal band called Godsmack, who of course has now sold well over 15 million records under his guidance. Paul and his company, Global Artist Management, have worked with several industry giants including Smashing Pumpkins, scorpions creed and joe perry and now he's here with us today paul welcome to learning to fly and thanks for joining me for the inaugural flight
1: oh hey thanks bruce thanks for having me on
0: so uh learning to fly you know we're we're all trying to learn how to fly and life is about going through lots of experiences so give us some insight into paul geary what When did you start, what did you feel like, why did you go in the direction, and and what made you feel like you could make it happen?
1: Well, it's funny, you know, when I first started uh, as a kid, it was just purely passion for music and playing. Anything more than that was way beyond my, you know, comprehension at the time. You know, I got a drum set when I was 13, and... uh, that was when I was just beginning to discover groups like Aerosmith and Led Zeppelin in their early records because this was back in the 70s, you know. And uh, what really saved me in hindsight was that I knew what I wanted.
0: When, and, and what was that? What was the driving force behind Paul Geary doing this stuff?
1: Well, it was actually the groups that were a decade before in the seventies. And when I went to the Boston garden, it was in 1977, I saw Aerosmith there. Uh, and I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. You know, it was, it was an overwhelming feeling watching, you know, 13,000 people just, on, on, up in the air and singing all these songs that I knew because I played the albums, you know, incessantly at home.
0: So, so when did you start playing the drums? What was, uh, you, I was know, 13, you
1: know, 13, 13 years old. My mom uh-huh. bought me a, drum you know, used drum set from one of the neighbors. Okay. You know, and, uh, you know, we were we were poor. It's actually a good story in itself because, you know, I really wanted a drum set. We had a tiny little place, and, of course, that's the last thing my father wanted was a drum set in that small yeah, place. You know,
0: being a, a, a former... Uh, the fledgling drummer, uh, my parents didn't want to buy me a drum set either because it made too much noise. Yeah, they'd be
1: happy with a violin. Right, a exactly. Right, not
0: even a violin, just no noise would have been, been perfect, yeah. right? <laughs> right, exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah, but it was funny, uh, my mom was determined to help me because she knew I was passionate about music. So we walked down to the neighbor's house and she said, look, you know, I know you have a set of drums for sale and uh, and but I have no money. She said, but... I would love to get the set for my son. And if you give me this set, it was $300. Wow. Which what what did it have in in it? Do you remember 74 or so? That was our rent. Yeah. You know, so uh, she said, but I promise you, I'll give you $5 a week every week without fail. If, if you sell me this. And I was really embarrassed. Like I was old enough just to know that it's $5 ma, you know, like, and the lady was like, you know what? I'll, I'll give you the set. Wow. And she gave us the drums. And my mom was there every Friday. You get paid Five you bucks. It, give them the five bucks. And uh, it took a long time, but she got it done. And, and uh, I couldn't let her down then.
0: So did you get lessons or were you self-taught? What? You
1: know, it was always about whoever was a little bit further ahead. There were other kids in the neighborhood that were just a little bit older and just a little bit better. Sure. And So I glommed onto them and mm-hmm. uh, would would watch them and ask them what they were doing and show me how to do it, and that just continued on throughout my career. Even at the point where you know I got off the ground, I would look at other drummers who were doing things that I thought were unique or interesting or different. You
0: see, that's that's an interesting point. A lot of people that you know want to know about becoming successful or getting to where they want to get to. Don't always feel like it's something they ought to be doing, meaning, you know, looking at somebody else, getting getting from somebody else's success, mirroring themselves. And, and I think that's that's an important ingredient in terms of building a career path.
1: I don't know how anybody would do it in any other way, but then to have a role model of some sort, you know, you know, you're not copying them necessarily. You you copy dozens you know, you look at everyone and you grab a little bit here and there, whatever suits you personally. And at the end of the day, you come out with your own personality mm-hmm. built from all these attributes.
0: So you started uh, learning to play and, and mirroring other people. When did you start to uh, join together and what, what kind of put you in a place where you wanted to have a band?
1: Well, I wanted to have a band right away, but of course that wasn't a practicality when there's really no way to do it. And uh, But... Eventually, with all neighborhood kids playing guitar and bass, you, know, you end up in someone else's basement, you know, just like whacking away and being terrible. But it's that's just part of the process. Is you, you just got to be willing to try and do this, even though, you know, what you're doing compared to everyone else you're, you're seeing that's further ahead is you know, elementary, you know, you're starting out. But it's just, it's such a wonderful feeling. I can still remember just getting through your first song from beginning to end, even if it was just with the guitar player next door and it was just the two of you learning something. And, you know, each time, each time you would achieve even that, it motivated and spurred you on to get a little bit better because you couldn't do that before. Now you can do that.
0: So what was your favorite Music that you were playing back then? Well, I mean, what inspired you to kind of really get into
1: it? Well, it's kind of funny because back then, there were bands that were playable, like the Rolling Stones and some early Aerosmith and like that. But Are we they, talking the pop era of Rolling Stones or are we We're uh, we a little later, later well, on? For me, I was a little bit, by this time, it was the late 70s and, you know, we, we were there was singles like Honky Tonk Woman that were, you know, easy to play. Right. You know, the beginner stuff or sure. like for a drummer, for instance. But it was motivating to be able to emulate it and do it. And then I got really messed up because along came Rush and Emerson Lake and Palmer. And I'd go to see them play and I'd go, oh my God, I mean, I can't do that. And right that was
0: that was like orchestra uh, like listening to an orchestra almost yeah I mean these yep.
1: guys were exhibitionists you right. know you think get Neil right. pert at the time especially in like 79 you know going to see him at a little theater in Boston and he's throwing the sticks and the drum sets spinning and he's you know beyond anything I could have ever done till today but I soon realized well it's kind of funny because Aerosmith and Led Zeppelin are a way bigger and more popular, you know, at, at the time. And I right. thought, hmm, got to think this through. Um, because for me now, it became how do I apply my abilities creatively? Because that's where a lot of musicians miss it. They spend their whole life trying to be better. They play harder, faster, keep, you know, trying to You know, get more technically uh, advanced as a player. When at the end of the day, at some point, as soon as your body—for me, as soon as my body had the ability to translate whatever was going on in my mind—I moved on from that process and on to creative. And it was surrounding myself just like I did when I was younger with the best players you know the best guitar player the best bass player people who were even a little further ahead than i was and figuring out a way to get in the
0: same room and so so what led you to your first band i mean what what and who was that and 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 what kinds of stuff did you do
1: well i had a band called adrenaline and uh this would have been in the uh late 70s 79 80 and it was primarily playing all those songs from all those bands it was cover band you know and uh one day
0: so were you playing like, parties or were you were, were you trying to
1: not yet what we did was uh we glommed on we by then we were going to to clubs and as you know that was a vibrant scene back then sure there was you know the rat in Boston it was the channel in south Boston and uh Jasper's and you know all a lot of
0: sticky floors yes yes yes. but it was
1: fun i mean if people came out to see original music and i remember seeing a band called luna um back then and uh i would start to see them every weekend i'd go wherever they were and i would see them play and i loved it and learned by watching them how to present you know how they come on how they go off and and uh how that all went on that level and we i befriended them uh Around the time that I was, I had my garage band, and Gary Sharon knocked on the door out of the blue one day in 1979.
0: Gary Sharon, your, your lead singer from Extreme.
1: That's right. And and uh, he knocked on the door and said, "Hey, I could hear you play, and sorry to butt in, but uh, you know I really want to sing, and uh, do you have a singer?" And I was wow. like, well, no, I do it myself right now just to get through the songs, and so come on in. And that's interesting because from that day forward, we we never left each other's side through several groups and decades until we had you know the number one song in the world uh, by 1991. More
0: than words, uh, just an amazing song and uh, quite a quite an accomplishment for a, a guy playing drums uh, uh, in his house. So <laughs> um, so 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 Gary comes over, and this is what 1980 now or 1979. Yeah. He yeah. came
1: over, and we would. Try and get through, you know, Stones and Aerosmith and doing that until, you know, and we were getting closer to this band Luna. We would go weekly, and then we befriended those guys, or they befriended us, and they we started opening for them for free. So we didn't really care. So where did
0: you play? What What, what were some of the uh, places that you guys played? They were
1: all those clubs, you know, the the, the Channel, and uh, right. there there were Bunratties in Austin. Bunratties in Austin, sure. Yeah, and we'd come in and we'd. uh play for half an hour, 45 minutes. And we were terrible. You know, in hindsight... I, so who was in
0: the band at that point? Uh,
1: it was me and Gary and a couple of the other neighborhood kids. It, it, it quickly evolved. I mean, at that time, it wasn't serious enough to be really thinking about next level things. It was about, you know, now we're able to uh, play well enough to, to complete songs, but now it was, oh, how do we present ourselves what do you, what do you look like? What do you, what's your style? And right. and, uh, and that there, that just kept going and going where you had to, well, now we're good at this and now how do we get good at that? So we started writing songs and we wrote a hundred terrible songs, right. you know, like it was just what it was. And it uh, might as well, we should have been called people repellent because <laughs> we came in and we did that. And luckily you had a band like Luna that would, fill the place everywhere. And we started to get comfortable being in front of five, six, seven hundred people at a time, sometimes more when you step up to like a channel would be fifteen or sixteen hundred. Sure. And slowly, very painfully and slowly, we began to get better at crafting songs. And it was clear, you know, what's a good song or a bad song, it's subjective until you get in front of people and you get response.
0: Sure. So what do, you, uh, what do you look for from, you know, when you're, you're out there performing and you're playing your own material and, and you know that most of the people there are there to hear things that are familiar because they like to kind of groove off of something they, they like. So wh- what are you looking for in the crowd to give you the confidence to, uh, to say, hey, this is a good direction I'm taking?
1: Well, I think it's familiarity. You know, when a song is unforgettable mm-hmm. um, or forgettable, for that matter, you know, and, and part of the process back then was when you went off stage, you got cleaned up, and you went out to def- to, to befriend every person in that place you possibly could, and they were there to see Luna, or right. some of them friends, uh, come in and see us, and uh, developing those relationships was extremely important, uh, as we got to the point where people would start you know, singing songs, certain songs of ours, and we'd know. Oh, well, that one's a winner. You know, others would just come and go. You know, go so you're looking clap. for
0: feedback from everybody and, yeah. and get a, a little bit of a direction.
1: Yes, and then people would start yelling, "Play this one! Play that one!" Oh, very and, and, cool. And it was like, oh, okay. You know, like that's what that's about. You know? So
0: we're gonna we're gonna take a break. Uh, we're here with Paul Geary. Um, we're gonna continue on uh, his uh, his path to some exciting stuff, and uh, we'll be right back. All right. We're back with Paul Geary, and Paul's been uh, taking us through a little bit of his uh, experience, getting to uh, where he's where he's ended, which has been quite a, an amazing career. So we're back in 1980. You're you're playing bands, you're going around, you're begging everybody to love you, and and you're asking about you know what they like. So from there, where where did the band come together? How how did that happen? Uh, that you know you now have you and Gary. So you have. Half half the group in there, and there's still Pat and Nuno to come. So,
1: yeah, that's right. I mean, we're a couple of players away from that. I, I mean, by uh, 1981, uh, Gary and I realized, look, it seems as though the two of us uh, are really serious about taking this to the next level. We were believers. We thought we could just get there.
0: What What was that? You know, that's that. You know, a lot of people want to make it. In this world, you know, a lot of people like yourself pounding in the basement, working day and night, talking. the What was it that you felt you had that was going to get you to a whole nother level and take you through a career? Because you had to believe in something. There had to be something that clicked for you.
1: Well, look, I, I wouldn't pretend to have thought that I was better or even as good as the artists that were getting off the ground. However... My passion for the music was so deep, I didn't care. I just wanted to be playing and playing in front of people and had realized over the first two years of doing this on a semi-amateur level that we were playing in front of more and more people the longer we did this. And, you know, that was enough. That and So you're getting the vibe back that, hey, we're pretty good and people like us. Yes, and then, you know, then the recording process, uh, you know, then the, the next step was... Really, where do we get, get get a few bucks to get into a studio to try and record ourselves? And because so that's is that the next progression? Thing.
0: You go from there. You say, "Hey, I, we got to get in the studio and see what we sound like, and see if we really have a sound." Was there a sound that you were after, or is it just well, we didn't are just playing uh, and it, we, just enjoying it and see where it goes.
1: We we thought our sound was whoever you know to bringing the individuals together, and that creates a unique sound within itself. You know, you got a, that singer and this drummer and. Uh, what, what happened back then was, you know, we, we, we would kick people out of the band pretty, you know, it was, that was my, I fell into that position it would be the guy to, you know, keep doing. Well,
0: that. you were, you were always the manager you in my experience with you and for people that don't know me, I ran a, uh, radio group for a long time in rock stations and that's where Paul and I first met and you were the, the front man, you were the guy, you were the manager, you were the energy uh, so you took on the role of driving that band. and I, I personally believe there would would be nothing had you not taken that role. So So you're doing that, you're weeding out the group, you're sort of getting to a place where you're comfortable. So wh- where did uh, where did Pat and, uh, and Nuno come from? Um,
1: well, there was a period of time. And it's interesting, when people talk about how did you get there, it's, a, you know, and as you'll hear now, and I'll explain to you, there's a series of things that were, that all add up to the next level. There was never someone who came in one day and said, eh, you know, you're great, we're going to take you there. What what had happened was in 81, once we cleaned house, we found a couple of guys that were um, in a band, Ed, Ed Gular and uh Peter Hunt. And we started a band uh, called The Dream at the time in 1980. And uh, then we began to take it to the next level where we were writing better songs. We were a little bit more well crafted in that. And we were starting to headline places, the clubs, on our own. And, uh, you know, it, it would take too long to tell you the entire story. But in a nutshell, as we gained momentum and we grew, uh, we began to make money you know and we were making a you know a couple grand a week and and uh we were in at that time in 82 83 that was that was great dough so
0: college was out of the question this was <laughs> out yeah uh-huh. yeah so you're doing this full-time yes you're, you're you're putting your heart and soul into this are you living at home at this point yes or you... we all
1: we all lived at home right. and uh it was over that period of time how old were you we at this point uh, Well, well it was 81 i was twenty. 21, okay. Like that. And so
0: so you, you were considered to be a loser by your neighbors who said this 21-year-old who thinks he's a rock star is living at home with his mom. Right? It's
1: funny. That went on for a long time, right. like another decade. Yeah, you yeah. Know, well, but
0: yeah, yeah. But it, might, it might come back. You never know, so.
1: Well, yeah, that's right. But an interesting story, though, about all of this is one of the breaks, of series of breaks that we got, um, there were two things. I mean, at, in like 83, 384 by that time we were kind of cooking we had a thing going on clearly people liked this band we played in clubs and the people showed up and we were making money and the first thing the first time i ever played in a seated full-blown concert setting was when a friend of mine that uh worked for the don law company and for me, Don Law might as well have been the Wizard of Oz. You know, like he was sure. just the guy. He who, was the guy who the was name the guy. On the ticket.
0: Yeah, it, I mean, you know, if you knew Don Law and, and he loved you, you were in in Easy Street.
1: It felt like that, yeah, and right. and I, you know, we happened to uh, have met somebody who worked for Don, and there was a band called Night Ranger, and at the time they had a big hit called Sister Christian, and it was a really big hit, like even for them, and uh, their opening act dropped out. So we got a call from Don Law's guy and said, Hey, you know, these guys are really popular um, locally. They'll bring some people in. And we played at the Orpheum in and uh,
0: that's gotta be a cool June event.
1: or July. Well, the funny part about it was um, it was a graduation from playing, you know, big, small time to small, big time, you know, and I'll never forget the feeling I felt when the curtains opened and I Everything ran out of me, all my confidence. My like, I I, and I was doing this regularly, but I remember looking out going, Oh my god! And now that was 3,000 people, which to the time to me felt like gigantic, you know. uh, But it's all perception as you look back eventually. Well,
0: still 3,000 people is a lot of people, 3,000
1: people. And and I remember it took maybe three songs before I got my chutzpah back, yeah, sure. Like for the first, I was gliding through the first songs try, right. trying to just process this and now was this dream or was the this dream the dream with okay. dream yeah i'm sorry and the yeah. interesting thing now at this point we were really being taken a bit more serious we were right. cooking locally making money making friends and a funny thing happened which was the next the next break about a year later uh uh, the, a girl who worked for us, she, Joanne Cody, was her name, and she was hugely helpful. She was like more like the manager than I was at that point because she was uh, booking the gigs, you know, keeping track of the bank account and and all that. And she noticed in a TV guide because back then, you know, you got a little booklet that told you it was on TV because it was you yeah know, yeah. Um, I remember TV guide. Yes, was going back to eighty yep. four, and an extraordinary thing happened because she said, "Look." There's a TV show coming out in the new season on CBS and it's called Dreams and it's about a rock band trying to get off the ground playing in clubs to, the, to make it to the big time. Starring a new guy, John Stamos. is He's going to be fronting it. So we thought, oh wow, that sounds just like our story. This is amazing. Um, and so, one day, a call comes into our hotline and it's from a an attorney and he says, Hey, I, you know, I represent this band in, in New Jersey. They called dreams. And, uh, we're looking to buy the name. We ran into your trademark and, and that, it was, that's a
0: fortunate uh, opportunity.
1: That's right. And he said, but he lied to us at the time and just said, I represent a band and they want the name and we'll give you $5,000 for it. And at the time we were thinking, oh, we're making a couple grand a week you know, we're doing pretty well here. It's oh, passing on this, All right? We'll keep our name. 10,000, 20, 25,000. At this point, it was kind of clear that something was going on here. So, right. you know, it was like, look, why don't you get another name? Maybe it's 25 grand. this a, you know. It's, it's an name. expensive uh, <clears throat> uh, purchase here. Well, it it to make a long story longer, what went on here was that we, the guy came clean. He told us he was hired by CVS. Told us about the sitcom that was coming on the air, and uh, that they wanted to buy the name because they planned on the band in the the show to actually graduate to the point of having their... sort
0: of like the monkeys yeah, did with uh,
1: with Pod, their show, Partridge Family kind of thing. But maybe family, monkeys, right. I don't yeah, know, because yeah. um, they were yeah, because they weren't really a band; they were they were actors sure. doing this thing, but actors that could play. So we asked them for a hundred thousand bucks and we said, you know, for a hundred thousand bucks, you know, we'll give it up. And their answer was, well, for a hundred thousand, we're willing to take it to court and fight because you guys have only performed on a regional basis, even though you have the name on a national basis, we think we can. Good negotiating point. I like that. You know? So we ended up, we closed it, and this is the way we closed it. We took twenty five grand up front, and we got five hundred dollars an episode. So the idea was, if it goes into syndication, you, you'll you have would
0: you would add to passive
1: that. income forever, you right, know, like right. and and we thought, geez, with twenty five grand, we can go in and make a record, we can make a video, and so forth. And uh, so interestingly, we had to change the name of the band. So we originally said, hey, maybe we should be. X Dream, and X-Dream. because you know formally the uh. d- formally the Dream were X Dream, and then the lawyers told us we couldn't do it because you get Dream cannot be in the name, right? Too
0: close to the uh, the, the name of the other. To what they
1: were trying to do. Sure. So we, you know, t- tossing names and ideas around in a room, came up with X Dream. Extreme. Was oh extreme e x t r e m e extreme. They can't say anything about that, and we were right, and they couldn't, and they let us have that, and uh, that's how we got the name extreme, and we used the dough to promote that name, and we made a video that got onto MTV basement tapes. We began recording in the studio so that we were kind of getting the feel for who we were, Uh, and the next thing was that uh, we we hired. Our guitar player left, and Nuno joined the band in 1985. The following year, and by that time we were pretty cooking regionally, you know, right. as extreme. And Nuno came in, and he was a, a more a stronger player, and he gave the band more edge. We were kind of a pop rock, popish rock band, and he came in with a lot of Van Halen edge, Sure. and you know that that helped from. Uh, you know, we it was moving us along musically quickly, um, and then in '86, Pat Badger joined the band. You know, and by that time, uh, we we had something going on. It was clear, you know, we were doing real business. While where recordings were, you know, we had a local record, and and uh, anyway, in '87. It, we took till November 1987 when when and Records, when they sent a rep in uh, and saw us play um, at the Paradise Theater in Boston. And uh, we headlined it. It was sold out, people going nuts. And he came into the dressing room after and says, I want to make records with you guys. And A&M Records, willing to put the... Our money where our mouths are, and and extreme was uh, was really born. Changed everything. So we'll be right back. Uh, we're here with Paul
0: Geary, and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about uh, making it on the road, what that felt like, and uh, and then get a little bit into the uh, the post extreme lifestyle. So we'll be right back with Paul Geary. Welcome back. We're here with Paul Geary, and uh, we're we're discussing uh, Paul's uh, career path and. An extreme and his management group and life in general, and we're now at uh, 1987. The band's formed. Uh, we've got all the players in here. Pat's joined. Uh, Nuno's joined. We've got Gary, and we A and M is signed uh, on the label, and uh, and and the next is history. So, what happened when when extreme became a real band?
1: Well, it was interesting. You know, for the first time now, we were financially supported. So, you know, back then when you got a major label record deal, they put you on payroll, you know, you're all on salary. It wasn't a ton of dough, but, you know, we were now supported. And uh, we began talking to the label about who may produce our first album. And we were all Queen fans. So we asked about uh, a producer named Mac who had produced several queen albums. And at the time he was really hot with a guy named Billy Squire who had some, some big hits at the time and, and with queen and, you know, he came in to meet us and we went into a local recording studio cause we were really comfortable there. It's a place we had recorded a lot of the songs that actually were the demos that got us signed, you know, and it took a long. What
0: were some of the demos in there?
1: Uh, yeah, the first album. And where uh,
0: where did where did they do this? Was this in a studio locally, or yeah, there know, was a studio in. Do you Hanson remember which studio was in? Um, a-
1: it, well, some of our friends owned a, a home studio um, that they had flipped their home into in uh, Hanson, Mass. And Pat and uh, Pat Danner and her husband, um, they were really ones that were good to us, and they they were allowing us to record for free in their studio in overnight when it, when they couldn't rent the studio, when it wasn't there, and that's what helped us record enough to actually, you know, you record 100 songs, and now five of them are really good, you know? Right. And, and those are the songs that we were sending out. So which
0: ones were the early uh, recordings? What uh- I think
1: in the first, we, we had a song called Mother, I Don't Want to Go to School Today, and that was on the first album, and that was one that showed itself, like, to be a crowd favorite. You know, so that was one of the songs that actually, to be honest, a lot of those demos never made it out of the recording studio. You know, they were just songs that uh, got us to the point of getting in and taking it to the next level with a real producer. So,
0: which was the first song that you guys produced that you knew? You know, this thing's well, going to go felt somewhere.
1: Funny enough, we, well, we weren't right. You know, I mean, the first. It, it's funny uh, that. It's just like as, as people, we can't see ourselves as other people see us. So, you know, you, you're, you're best off to uh, get consensus uh, from people. So and, how, did you, and
0: how did you get cons- – what was consensus for consensus you? Consensus
1: with people reacting – you know, um, you, you, know, you'd get the same thing. They'd go, oh, that one, oh, that one, you know, and so many. And you're like, really? Oh, okay. You know, that to so many people have the same opinion. So you there was a
0: consistent it, vibe around something. That's right. And, and so you said, okay, I think that's cool. And that's going to work.
1: Exactly. Right. And, and, uh, you know, we're still going back now to 1988, where a very interesting thing happened. We were still playing out from time to time in these large clubs, uh, and that was to keep ourselves fresh and keep our chops up. And uh, uh, I had met a guy named Tim Collins uh, back then. and, and The Tim, manager
0: for Aerosmith, Tim Collins.
1: That's right. Yep. And Tim was managing Aerosmith. And I was out of my mind because as we go back in the story 10 years before, Aerosmith was the first band I ever saw live that gave me the the drive to do all this. And I just couldn't believe it. And, you know, to this very day, I'm a huge fan. And so... The story is that, you know, I was in the arena looking out, looking in from way up in the balcony and crappy seats, seeing Aerosmith, but being so happy to be there. And a decade later, by that time I had a record deal, I meet Tim Collins. He invited me to his office because I asked him if he would be interested in taking us on. And he was interested. So I went to his office to talk with him. He said he had talked to the label and that they were really serious about the band and that I was right about that. And they they were going to put the dough into it. So he thought, you know, the problem is I just haven't seen you play live. And I don't know when I'm going to have time because you have very few gigs right now. And I'm so busy with Aerosmith. They were in the height of permanent vacation at that time. 88
0: was just a a big year for them. It was gigantic for them.
1: and. So as I sat there with him in the office, he said, you know what? You know, there's a new band. You know, have you heard the band Guns N' Roses? They're opening for Aerosmith, but they need some days off. Maybe I'll just have you open for Aerosmith, and this way I can see you play, because oh, I'll wow. be uh, with them. And I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I went into my own head at the moment going, are you kidding me? This is, are, are you kidding, right? You're kidding. He said, let me call Tyler. And he gets him on the speakerphone, and he goes, hey. He goes, Stephen. Yeah, I'm here with this kid Paul Geary. He's got a band called Extreme, and Stephen said I heard of that band. They're, they're great. I heard they're really you know cool band. You know, and, and I saw so yeah I'm dying. So he said you know I want to put them on, and they can start Friday at the Centrum. You know, um, and at the Centrum, we, you know, it ended up being I was talking about that was the uh, in Maine at the Portland Civic Center. That was the first night. So I. Walked out of that place. You know, believe
0: it or not, I was at that concert. And oh. because I'd owned uh, a radio station in Maine, The Fox, and we were the sponsors the uh, uh, in the Bangor area and part of Portland. So uh, I was there. P- you, you remember Jimmy Varro? Jimmy Varro was backstage with you guys. So how's that for, you know.
1: That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we were we were out of our minds. So I walked out of his office. And back then, you had to find a payphone. You know, I'd take it dimes in my pocket and i um, and I got a jalopy car that's parked at a meter, but I didn't care. Ticket me. I don't care. And I just ran blocks and blocks looking for a payphone to call Gary to tell him, I just got a song with Aerosmith. He lost his mind. Didn't believe me fully at the time. He was thinking, ah, you're messing with me. And uh, so I found, then I had to find my way back to where my car was. I finally did and raced over there and we all Hip hip parade, you know, and and three days later, there we are backstage at the Civic Center, the the Portland Portland Civic Center, Center. Yep. and uh, we go in there and you know we're waiting. We of course show up earlier than we needed to be there. So that's like a six thousand seat arena,
0: right? Ah uh, uh, no, it's bigger.
1: Is it bigger? Yeah, yeah, that's a ten or eleven. Is it ten or eleven? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, but even six would have been more than we had played yep. for at the time. Yeah. Uh so. Tyler and Perry came in, and they, we were standing back there in in the base where they came in, and they said, "Well, welcome to the big time," and wow. and uh, you know shook our hands, and we uh, eventually we just took the stage without a sound check because um, that's the way it was. It was so much production around Aerosmith at the time; they were doing their thing, but we didn't care. And I'll never forget because um, I had been to that venue seeing concerts. I I'd seen Aerosmith and, there, and and in everywhere I could see them possibly play when back in that day uh, that I could afford a ticket. And I remember, so, you know, they asked us, are we ready? And they start killing the house lights and the crowd. Ah, you know, that happens when the lights go down and we started playing and it was so, it was so big, you know, one would hit the drums and it would be boom, you know, like, cause we're in this big arena and I, I was overwhelmed by that again. And I was back to where I was at the Orpheum in 84, where I was overwhelmed and looking out. And as far as I was concerned, we didn't even have an album out yet. And as far as I was concerned, this could be the only time I ever play in an arena. I didn't know what would happen. So f- for me, I'm saying to myself, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. And I was looking out around. I was trying to, I rem- I wanted to, I would remind myself to savor this. Don't blow right through it and just be, Paying attention to what you're doing here, look out there, feel good about it, like, you know, absorb it. Right. And I remember looking out to where I had been sitting 10 years before and thinking there must be some kid out there who's like, oh, and now suddenly I was, it was like being in the eye of the storm. I was out there and then 10 years later, shoo, now I'm looking out to, to where the people were. So you're a little out of body at this point. It was incredible. Right. I was crying yeah. about four songs in, I was saying, I'm here. I'm here and, and I'm literally seeing uh, Joe Perry and Kramer on Once I Watching Us play, right. and now I'm now I'm playing and they're watching us and I'm thinking, oh my god, dreams do come true. Anything can happen if you keep
0: what at a cool, it. What a cool story. That's that's phenomenal. So so I know I know that uh, you, gets better. Yeah, no, I know it gets better. So you you know I you, you know uh, for for those of you that don't know uh, Extreme had I Worldwide tour and uh, Paul always. Uh, Paul and I have been friends for a long time. Paul, Paul always tells me this story about uh, going into Brazil, and I think that that's uh, you know sort of along the lines of this. Uh, you know, your first your first trip into uh, Brazil and uh, the experience that you guys had there.
1: Yeah, well, for some reason, this band uh, were so much bigger overseas than we ever achieved in America. You know, I mean, we we were on a a arena level uh, in MM Japan. We'd roll in do two nights at the Budokan in Tokyo. You know, without an opening act. For some reason, what we did connected in some other countries more than it did in the states. So at
0: this point, did you? How many albums did you guys have? uh, um,
1: Well, it was the first album that the first place we experienced real fame, like where people were waiting at the airport, was actually Tokyo. Uh we we hadn't experienced that. I mean we were popular and but now you're touring and so you have you're developing all over again. I mean we went from a big New England act to a nobody act in Nebraska. Right. <laughs> you know, that that's just being discovered and just kinda of getting off the ground. So there are a lot of
0: new beginnings.
1: That's right. And we went from being a club circuit band, albeit a national... A lot of
0: people don't think that way. They think, you know, you go from, hey, you're in uh, Boston and now you're on concert and and everybody knows you and you're great. But no, you've got to reestablish yourself as a a, a consistent and reliable and well-known entity at each level.
1: That's right. And you, you have to say to yourself every time you play... These, this may be the one and only time these people see you. So you got to be great every night. Right. You know, and, and we just went from town to town playing in large clubs. And uh, on that album, uh, you know, we we didn't really hit the arena level yet. We were playing in large clubs, but we were determined to headline. So we, would, we were happy in that space in a tour bus just as long as we could go and we were making a living. But they sent us over to japan and all of a sudden we were famous where in the states even we were sort of a cool up-and-coming band over in japan there were people at the airport waiting wow and we 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 had So experienced so what, did, so
0: what did that feel like
1: it it felt like a million bucks so you're flying taxes. in commercially are you
0: flying in commercially and oh yeah
1: yeah. Oh yeah. We are in coach. Right. You're
0: in coach. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you're coming it's- in coach into uh, into what Tokyo, right? And and so you're landing in Tokyo, and uh, and what happens?
1: And we we come out and and there was a lot of young girls and and guys, and they had like little. Dolls of us uh, likenesses that they would make and they were giving to us as gifts and autographs and pictures and screaming and you know moving our way into you know a, a record company van you know was picking us up there to take us to the hotel get to the hotel there's people in the lobby wow. so you're signing autographs through the lobby getting to the room and it just turns out that we clicked there in Japan and our very first record was a hit so uh, it was a which which record was that which uh... it was it was a self titled debut album just okay. extreme mm-hmm. you know and uh, we had a song called Kid Ego which was our first single and it was actually a hit there and uh, the next place uh, that we experienced that in was was uh, Europe um, we Europe uh, well not so much as in Japan. Uh, on the first record but we did tour throughout Europe and we were able to headline places and we were doing well and people were reacting they knew the songs it wasn't huge audiences but they knew all the songs and that the audience that were there were real fans cool and we actually we stalled around 300,000 copies uh which back then in 89 that was okay It was enough to keep the label interested and everybody was still on board and we went off to make another record, uh, which, you know, which record then was the one that actually took us over. But the interesting part about the second record, which was Pornograffiti, uh, we, we did the same thing. We put out a single, it did okay, we put out a second single called Get the Funk Out, The, the both singles did just okay at active rock and we got to about 300,000 units and we fell off the chart again. So we were really kind of bummed because we wanted to make some kind of gain. Our target was gold, 500,000 records. We wanted to get to a gold round and we didn't. But the record company said, well, look, Get the Funk Out is is like a semi-hit in Europe. So why don't we go over there and try and take it to the next level there? And- we went over there and we were working get the funk out and people knew it and there was at that time they were making dance mixes of the tracks and when clubs they had this thumping get the funk out kind of dance track and uh while we were over there doing it it was actually the label that said look we want to go with this song more than words next because the record is otherwise dead in the states and we're not going to come with a third single we haven't done enough well enough to come but more than words is different and people like it a lot and we think we can get traction with that and some single radio station started playing it and uh you know back here at home of course we were more popular than we were in other places anyway but but once uh you know WAF picked it up uh and then you know h-j-y-g-i-r in the the region uh before, before we knew, it, we were still in Europe. You know, because you'd go out on the road for months back then. You know, we were still in Europe when we realized we had a hit record on our hands because MTV was now playing the single uh, for "More Than Words" a video at nauseum, like ridiculous amounts, and our families were calling us and going crazy. we were on TV every day, and you know, we had went from selling three hundred thousand units to oh, "More Than Words" uh, went right through Active Rock, right through. I think back. CH, then it was you like went to C H R, adult, adult yeah. contemporary, yeah, went and, to A C, right, right across yep. the board. Right. I mean, and it
0: was a it was a it, mega hit because I, I know that you know we did a show when you came back from Europe, um, and that's th- right. Yeah, we uh, we did a a show at uh, for a, uh, it was one of our Halloween shows. I still
1: remember getting the call from you.
0: Oh yes, begging. I think it was yes. Nah, uh, nah. And uh, was and and I remember uh, there wasn't a TV station that didn't want an interview because the song was so hot and so big. Uh, and people were running all over the place uh, to try to get into this concert. So it was a big time.
1: It, it, everything changed. I mean, yep. it was a number one hit in 30 countries. Right. And that's, you know, that's when it starts to get. So, really how many crazy. records
0: did you sell at that point? What, what, well, it at went... that
1: point, we were selling 100,000 albums a week. A week. You know, it, it, it changed from you know, 300,000 units to, I think our peak was like hitting 120,000 albums a week. And it didn't stop till we were over 4 million units. Um, and we, at that point now, were worldwide
0: so now so now you're worldwide you know you've 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 come you know you've uh, gone from you know a, a band that people knew songs they liked and now you're you know a, a mega player so what changed at that point for you guys
1: it was really amazing because when we left the country we weren't even on the chart with our album when we came back we were screaming i mean it was a new place it would never be the same so
0: know? what changed for you guys from with that experience and that
1: recognition well, this, uh, there's a lot of uh, s- sort of motivation that comes out of, okay, we're not dreaming. This is real. This is like, uh, we got it there. I mean, you don't get any higher than number one at top 40. No, you no, know, that s- is that
0: is the pinnacle of music. You know, <clears throat> when you're charted and you're number one, I mean, that's it. You're, you're That's forever. Casey Gason plays the song, you know. That's You, right. you, you made it, yeah. yeah.
1: Right. And so, so, you know, at that point, everyone woke up like our our parents uh grandpa like people who thought you were the uh, most popular guy it was great that and you and were involved. in a band yeah but now you're coming home and you know by that time i think i owed my father 30 grand in 10 dollar bills like he was like uh dad you got a 20 you know like back then it you know he's helping me out but then i um was able to bring him like a 30k in a paper bag you know just out of you know love. being funny yeah you know and and paying him and and but at that point, it was just incredible to have all the trappings. You know, the 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 you know, the what, wh- what
0: was the thing that most that made that that you know you said to yourself, My God, I never thought this would ever be experienced by me at that point.
1: Well, the, you know, at that point, uh when I I was renting an apartment and I went out and bought a, a beautiful big impressive home in a in a hoity neighborhood um which i i couldn't even believe like uh, that i had that and that this was so, that real it was so real that now you know I had your own big beautiful house and i bought a ferrari and you know i was off to the races i mean as then i was still relatively young in my 20s <laughs> you know and and doing this and, and
0: so you've gone from schmendrick to a uh, key player overnight
1: to, uh to Schmendrick with money.
0: With money, right, yes, <laughs> <Yeah>. right.
1: Because <laughs> I was still, there's a the difference, you know, I was a poor guy with money. That's a difference in a rich guy with money. No, no, I, uh, I get it. You
0: know. yeah, still trying to get both. So, uh, so you, uh, you're now making it. You guys are making it. Uh, now you have to kind of beat what you already did, which is really a challenge because More Than Words was as big as anything, you know, t- today you're still getting plays all over the place, so... What do you
1: do from there? I mean, the pressure then gets really big. It's a standard at this point. Yeah, it is, absolutely. in itself, a whole other, like, thing that that you hang on for this many years. It's
0: in rotation all the time on AC. I mean, it's
1: constant, yeah. Which is wonderful. Well, you know, we had a song called Wholehearted, which we thought is a bridge gap, because we, at the time, that was a little bumming us out, is we were a guitar-driven rock act. And More Than Words was sort of uh, so far from that. Uh, we loved the song. It was Did us. that kill the band? Uh, you know what? It, I don't know how we could actually say that something that helped us sell eventually 10 million albums collectively uh, was uh, Kill the Band. Um, however, uh, it was another hill to climb. We had to start over again, re-educating the public. on As to who, who Extreme
0: was, yeah. I mean, that was a big, you know, the back then that was a big, big deal was Crossing over, you know, do you the decision around labels for people that don't know music? You know, uh, there was always a discussion about if, if I'm on rock, do I do I want a song on CHR because that kills my audience? So, so now you did the the thing that everybody feared most. You crossed over into CHR and AC, and you're a rock band. So now,
1: and it wasn't our intention,
0: right? No, mean, no, no, no. Is it was just a great opportunity? But now you're there. And so that's usually the killer app in music. You know, you, you've crossed over. Your bass says, hey, that was a great song, but you, you're really not in my genre anymore.
1: Yeah. Well, it was interesting because uh, we released a song called Wholehearted, which, which was also a big hit and, uh, for us, which was great, because we then at least crossed over this place of being a one-hit wonder. So you had a follow-up. Yeah, we had a follow-up, and it worked, and it was big. Now, the next album came out. It was interesting because we were then coming with back with aggressive rock guitar-driven songs. And we now sold 500,000 copies uh, as opposed to millions. Uh, and in our mentality, or at least mine at the time was, well, this is what happened. We have a 300,000 album band that's now at 500,000, and that's your bass. Right, those are the people right. who really. But know. the label
0: doesn't want to hear that because they they, yeah. they they want your five million uh, records every and, time. Yes, yeah. and every time, right? So so now they lose a little interest, I would imagine.
1: Well, I mean, it was still selling a million albums, you okay. know, a worldwide mm-hmm. million albums, and so there was there was none of that. And for us, it didn't matter because we were out in arenas, and at that point, we were opening, you know, for full tours. We were out with Aerosmith and uh, ZZ Top and uh, Brian Adams playing. We were playing stadiums. Uh, four nights a week with Brian Adams because he had everything I do. I do it for you. Brian Adams and, was big. He was giant, and yep. we had more than words. Those were like the two biggest songs of the you know period.
0: So at this point now you're you're, you're playing almost where where you hoped you you know your your aspirations would take you. You're there. Um, what's next at that point? Did you you know? Do you guys? huddle up and say hey what are we doing now or did you you just say hey let's enjoy this and see where it takes us or was there a plan or or was the life just taking you in that in a well, direction
1: at that point things began to change and i'll tell you why one of the things that breaks up many bands is is money right, because once and that's for for a lot of different reasons but for the reasons for us it wasn't that we fought over money because we never did we we split our money and that was it we that was the way that was. But now, you don't have to actually be there. You know, you you, you have some dough, and especially in our naivety at that age, you, know, you give someone a couple of million bucks, and you think you're, you know...
0: Yeah, you, the got world everything. is over. You'll never yeah. need money again. Right, you know? exactly,
1: right. Because uh, we, you know, we came from nowhere, so that was an enormous amount of money. And,
0: <laughs> and back then, a couple of million bucks was a couple of million yeah, bucks. that's right. right.
1: And And so, anyway, we began to have different ideas, and there was some internal artistic pull because you know you had a guitar player who was like man I want to
0: and Nuno is a great guitar player yeah, he really Just, is Yeah, I mean, leading edge
1: there's no question about that yeah. and we, you know, we had Brian May coming out and joining us on stage and we had all the great guitar players from Jimmy Page uh, Brian May Joe Perry they were all like coming out to say ah oh, who, who's this guy and I want to see this guy play you know because yeah. he was that good uh, a player and still uh, is so yeah Yep. And his story in itself—I mean, each one of us. At, later on, we'll get to that. But uh, at that point, I began to think, "Hmm." Now it's ninety-three, ninety-four, and Nirvana and Pearl Jim and yeah, we're, Smashing we're, we're, Pumpkins.
0: It was—it was a, was a bit—it was a different rock direction. And your band was sort of categorized, on some level, as an '80s, a uh, uh, late a uh, hair bandish. Or fringe. It was kind
1: of an ish because yeah, ish. I felt right. like we were misfits in a way. There was nobody really exactly doing what we were doing. You know, you got well, grunge thing. was
0: taking off, and you guys yes. weren't into no grunge question. at that point. Yeah, yeah so, There's no question about so, it. So, so you lost a little bit of that. You lost that edge that because you know, as you know, rock is always wants to be at the edge and always wants to be driving the music. Yes. and you weren't driving the music at that point. So,
1: yeah. Well, that's that's where the trouble began because you know you had. One guy, in, you Nuno know, artistically wanting to just play his balls off. He just wanted to go, you know, right. and and me, I'm a business guy, and I was thinking, well, what we really need to do is we really need to move away from there because we are not going to be able to compete in that arena. And if we, we move into a broader sound, which is part of what we do, we can transcend this. And we literally sat together in Florida at a meeting and talked about what we would do. And my opinion at that point was that, look, I appreciate that, we, we've all earned it. You know, you are not wrong. You, you That's what you wanna do artistically, you've earned that, you can do it. It's not what I wanna do because I don't wanna end up back in clubs. I wanna stay playing on this level And Gary Sharon, although he uh, also wanted to stay at that level, I think we all did, he was still willing to take the shot and support the music the way it was. And I was not. And it was at that meeting that we sat, and I said, look, tell you what, I I think it's time for me to take my passion to the next level. Um, And that was, actually it was Nuno who came to me in the studio. We were recording our fourth album at that point, and said, you know, Paul... You saw, I see, I heard you having an argument with the merchandiser in the, in the studio kitchen. And uh, he goes, You were so passionate about that. And he said, When I saw you come in and play, you played right on. He goes, it was exactly what we were all hoping to hear. You know, you, you, you nailed it. But I can tell it's different. You know, you're not in a rush to get in there and play. You really would want to get in there and argue with the merchandiser or all the record company. And that hit me hard. You know, I went home that night and went, You know what? He's right. I I I am more passionate about that. The playing part became sort of a thing that I did. That was my contribution. I, I played, but it's not really what drove my bus. You know, and the next day we had that meeting about where we were going musically. And that's when I told them that I was going to leave and start an artist management company.
0: We're talking to Paul Geary. We're going to take a break and we'll be right back talk about uh, Post Extreme. And uh, you're listening to... Uh Learning to fly. So we're back here with Paul Geary and, um, we're talking a little bit about, uh, post extreme. Now, uh, you know, I, I fortunate I've, I've been around Paul for a long time. So I, I know some of the story I've participated in some of the story, frankly. And, uh, so in 93, 94, um, you're starting to move towards management, which is uh, where you are now and, and where you've built enormous success. And, uh, Tell us about that transition because I remember it was a transition uh, because you started in, uh, people don't know you uh, you owned a little bit of a club in Providence uh, where you started to learn a little bit about the economics of uh, running a a concert venue and uh, probably uh, served you well for your future.
1: That's certainly one of the things that I explored that actually helped. But, you know, it was uh, actually on Valentine's Day in February of 1994, when I, I walked out, it was the day after um, that I had completed recording the tracks for myself uh, for for that fourth album. Uh, and I had told the guys, I'll just keep playing as long as it takes to get a drummer in there. Uh, and in the meantime, we were trying to figure out a concept because I owned uh, my quarter of the brand. And we were just trying to figure out... Uh, how to work it fairly monetarily so, so
0: did you guys do that together or did you get outside counsel
1: we started together uh with our, the, our own in-house people and just said look let's just pay a drummer and paul will make the his share minus whatever we have to pay somebody to go out and play which is a fair agreement and sure it started that way and it eventually changed when uh uh a guy that was managing uh, both Rush and Van Halen signed the band. Ray was his name. He was from Canada. He signed Extreme, and that was before our paperwork was done. And that did start a little bit of a a rift. However, it uh, never ended up um, damaging the relationship. We just ended up hammering through it. I you guys, you guys have been really close, you know, and people
0: that, uh, that know you know, all four of you have acted like brothers and, and, and that, that sort of vibe is never, frankly, left and uh, which is enjoyable about being about, around all of you is it, it's like being around family.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm proud of that part of it. I mean, I, I can't imagine having gone from uh, a garage to eventually stadiums and arenas and meeting all the people that we ever grew up dreaming about that we could meet. I mean, we met them all. You know, members of Led Zeppelin, the Beatles, the Aerosmith, and so forth. So, you know, the next part of this whole thing is that I, I spent about two years uh, starting over again. Right. Because now I was a manager. And it was in that time that one of Don Law's guys, I mean, course of course, at that time, Don had put on a dozen different big shows for people that
0: don't know Don Law's major uh, right now Don law is president of Live Nation and uh, a national uh, concert venue um, that that uh, really controls most of music uh, venues and uh, Don started here in Cambridge in Boston and Boston and has been the king for a long time so uh, Don, you deserve your uh, your king. Title, um, he sure does, yeah. and he's
1: good to me. I mean, that a period of time after that, I was trying to while I was trying to figure out, you know, I, I knew I wanted to manage, and I but I knew I needed an artist that was really uh, a good call, like an artist that if, if I put everything I had into it, I, you know, had the ability to translate into a, a big band. And I I invested in the Strand Theater in Providence uh, with Dawn. Don put some. Dough. I didn't know that Don was your partner at the time. Oh yeah, okay. I put in dough, and Don had put in dough, and Bob Duto, who was working for him, was doing the booking, and uh, I was co-running the the actual venue, and it was great because, and I was being a promoter for a period, learning that side of things, and I I promoted. I mean, we did together. We did Bob Dylan, we did Bon Jovi. Uh, now it was a great venue. There was st- one of the first stand-up venues I remember.
0: You know, concerts were moving from sitting in chairs to uh, everybody standing up, and that was and that was what made that a very cool place.
1: Yeah, it was a yeah. good-sized place with yeah. uh, 2,800 capacity. Right, with a big bar, remember? It was, uh, multiples. Multiple, yeah. You know, multiple it was a great bars. little venue, yeah. And it was fun. I had a good time doing it, and uh, ultimately I ended up losing money. I, I, It all came down to, you know, you'd have a big show and then, you know, you'd have a week or two that were poor, and you'd put it in, and you'd come back and bid. And I was kind of spinning my wheels, and that was around the time that you know Sully had been uh, hanging at my house and uh, the singer of Godsmack.
0: Yeah, uh, no, I, I remember. You know, we were uh, we were involved with your your venue, at WAF, at the time. I was uh, running WAF, and uh, you know, we were promoting concerts, and we were also playing a, a new band called Godsmack. And, uh, I remember Ron Valeri, our, our program director, uh, you know, said, Hey, you know, to, to, to Sully and the rest of the team, uh, you know, maybe you should uh, meet this guy, Paul Geary. Um, he's a good guy. He's been a rock star. He's, he's pretty smart. You know, you guys need a manager and he, he's got some pretty good connections. And I think that was one of the first, uh, ways you guys came together if I'm not mistaken.
1: Well, the real gift that was WAF, uh, with Godsmack was that uh, it was the first station to actually add. It wasn't, even before I was involved, you guys had a night guy who, Rocco. Was, who was playing it but not reporting not it.
0: Not only was Rocco not playing it, not reporting it, we didn't know he was playing it every night. And, you know, he was playing it two or three times a night, which was not what was part of the uh, rotation. So Rocco was a big, big believer in the band and, and a big promoter.
1: Deserves a lot of credit, and, yep. and but when when uh, you and Ron were running the station, we had our relationship for years with Extreme and the back and forth. We were good to each other, and and uh, it was really amazing that uh, what you guys did was actually add and report uh, the song uh, called whatever. You know, you
0: know what I remember? Uh, we added uh, Godsmack to the morning morning drive back in '90s. Nobody played what was considered heavy rock metal rock in the mornings yeah. you know it was a it's big 97. deal 97 yeah. yeah and and so uh, you know labels used to call me and go i can't believe i'm here in godsmack in the morning what's wrong with you guys i said you know hey they're a hot band and that's where it belongs and 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 uh it, that was a big deal for us because uh they became good friends as uh, through you and and then eventually
1: them and uh we uh, we grew together at that point no, that's exactly right. And uh, in fact, the 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 heroes really of that story uh, were you know the the, the team at AAF, uh, the team uh, with Mike Drees at uh, yeah, Newbury Comics. Comics. Yeah, yep. I mean they. Yeah, had the he retail.
0: was. Drees was a big. I forget yeah. all about Mike. Mike was a big player in terms of <laughs> allowing bands to 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 develop because he sold their records.
1: That's right, and and then there was the Don Law Company that was booking band for me putting them on with national acts and that was a very powerful circle of people here mm-hmm. um between now we were getting reported to sound scan by the drees we had af reporting it to the uh who would it have been at the time billboard i don't
0: know yeah a billboard or yeah, yeah we were we were a reporter at the time so right. yeah yeah
1: and and then uh You know, we were playing shows and, you know, it it took a while because most of the record companies that I brought it to at the time passed on it because they felt, well, look, Paul, you just missed it. This is kind of Metallica, Alice in Chains, and everyone's now on to Limp Bizkit and Rage Against the Machine. So it's kind of a rap rock thing. But, you know, we were insistent that, look, we have cause and effect here. It's it gets played on the radio. It sells records. That's all you need to know, you know, so... You know, and it, it was universal music that uh, actually raised their hand. Plus,
0: you had a really passionate band. I mean, Sully, yeah. Sully, like yourself, was a was a business guy. He was out there promoting, you know, he'd be at the station with, you know, if you'd say, hey, Sully, come on down and bring some... He'd bring, you know, a, a number of albums with him. He'd sit there and sign autographs all day long because he, he wanted to be successful. He did.
1: And yeah. we... We worked really hard together, and it's a testament to where we are after twenty-something years. I'm still managing Godsmack, and
0: uh, no, what a know. great. You know, you know what I, you know, what I have always said about rock, uh, rock stars that that because uh, I've been fortunate enough to meet a lot over the years at AF. Rock stars know they're rock stars before you and I know they're rock stars. There's something in their DNA that allows them to believe they are a star. Well before anybody else recognizes that it's it's an extraordinary uh, insight into into their
1: personalities and what drives them. Yeah, that's a very good point. I hadn't thought too much about that, but uh, it makes complete sense what you're saying. And and uh, you know, uh, backing up a bit, and you know the, the the Godsmack thing was was just a great sort of uh, entry point, a launch point for me as a manager. And I and I realized back then that okay. I have to keep moving. I have to keep parlaying because I, I realized that, you know, once Extreme came and they lost the, the level of success and attention they were getting, but they were being true to themselves and what they wanted to do musically and they could afford to do it and they did it. And that's where they went, it's not where I wanted to go. And Godsmack blew up and we were an arena level band before you knew it. And through that, uh, I had Momentum as a manager and I, I, I signed a band called Fuel out of Pennsylvania and had a couple of, uh, you know, significant.
0: They had some good songs.
1: Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> yeah, we, we did very well. And, and now I had a management company. You know, I was managing three or four acts at that point And I, I did that right out of, you know, Medford and Boston uh, for several years until the point where Godsmack had, had you know, three multi-platinum albums. And that's when everything changes, when uh, Ir- Irving Azoff called me.
0: Right. Well, for people that don't know, Irving Azoff is uh, the king of management. And uh, um, and I'm, I'm paying dues to him now. I don't know if you know. He's got a, a company now like BMI and ASCAP. And uh, he's killing me. Would you please tell him to stop killing my radio group? Uh, I'm paying too much money every month.
1: Well, I've, I've been blessed to be just in his wake. Yeah. Hit
0: yeah, it. yeah. Well, anybody has. And so then you went out to LA, I remember, and uh, became partners uh, with his group. And, uh, and, and, and that, that was a good run.
1: Oh my God. I had eight great years with Irving and we started a company called AGP, which right. was Azov, Geary and Jared Paul. So right. the, uh, the AGP and, and we had that company together, and, and that's when uh, you know, I started overseeing the careers of the Smashing Pumpkins and the Scorpions. And we started to do new interesting things. There was a TV show called Glee, and we did the touring production. So we would take all the stars of Glee on the road and do huge business with it. We were doing Dancing with the Stars Alive, so we were bringing that to theaters around the country. Uh, we, we are responsible for reforming New Kids on the Block
0: Right, right, you, you recharged there and re-energized their careers, uh, frankly. Uh, they, they yeah, came- my
1: partner, Jared, was really should be credited for that. I mean, he was all over that, and it worked. And no one thought it would work, because all their fans were 30-somethings. These guys were 30, late 30s. And bang, it came out, and it was a juggernaut, again,
0: Big deal. So we're here with Paul Geary. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about what's next for Paul, um, a, a career of music, a career of management, and uh, what do we have to look forward to next? We'll be right back. We're back here with Paul Geary at, uh, and uh, you're listening to Learning to Fly and uh, being produced uh, by uh, well Jack. Uh, so. You know, we've gone through your your, your beginnings, your, your 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 surge, your your management. So, you know, we're now here, or we're just about here. Where do we go from here? You know, the one thing you have said, and if anybody's trying to take notes during this thing, and and I think it's really an important lesson, is that you've had to reinvent yourself at each level and you've had to recredentialize yourself at each level and people don't recognize that they think you know hey you just hey i'm paul geary I, i've been on starred and rock and roll for my whole life so i'm credible no you have to be credible and um and each way you've uh, which is uh, really a testament to what you've been able to do you've been able to transform yourself and reinvent yourself so this is another one of those stages, I, I think. And so what's up for now and, and for the next couple of years? Well, uh,
1: speaking to what you were just saying, the interesting part, and so people ask me all the time, how did you do it? How do I do it? And one of the key things you always know is knowing what you want. Don't, it's not right. You come to me and say, how do I make it in the music business? That's not the way to look at it. It's how do I become that like, you know, they they see being... For, you could work for a record company. You could be a promoter. You could be an entertainment attorney. You could be a manager like myself. You have to know what you want. Yeah, but you also
0: have to have done a lot of the, uh, the jobs along the way, you know, people don't, uh, they discount. Well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm only doing, not only you're, you're doing something that's a step towards the next thing you're doing. And if you think that way, you get to the next step. And I think that's what a lot of people don't recognize. They, they want to come in and be the star of the show or the, they, they don't recognize that there's a lot to be gained from not being the star of the show. But but by learning from the star and by building your confidence and building your repertoire and and that's as critical as being the star.
1: It's really key. It's it's going back to the beginning of this interview when we were talking about getting close to drummers that were further along. You know, you, right. you just you just do that, and you keep doing that, and I'm still doing that. I mean, going off with Irving was the greatest thing I could have ever done. I learned so. Much. I felt like I was starting all over again in all the things that he was up to, and the way he was manipulating venues and everything else to to get the most for the artist that he could. And, and he's and, the master. He really was. And I, I learned so much uh, being next to him, and uh, of what was and what wasn't. And after all those years with him, at that point, um, and he resigned signed from the company um, in 2013, January of 13, just because it made sense. And it was, you know, an Uber amount of money to walk away from running Live Nation and all that he was doing at the time. And that gave me the ability to start over again. And I, I opened up my own company in Los Angeles. And uh, it was at that point, as I had gotten to know, uh, it, well, what happened was Aerosmith was being managed by a different division of our company with Irving. Um, and once again, I ended up in the same room with Isn't those guys. Isn't that interesting?
0: Uh, Aerosmith is the theme that keeps giving.
1: It really does, yep. and the fact that they were from Boston and they always they like that. They're loyal Boston guys, and
0: right. you know, Boston guys tend to be loyal. I mean, there seems it's there's a really tight community here in Boston.
1: Yeah, if you if you know if you're from Boston, you you know all the other Boston guys. It's yeah, there's yeah, something all there about
0: is. Boston that is.
1: Uh, that, that's very comforting it yep. will get you in the door to a, with another Bostonite, right you know exactly and, uh, anyway I, you know the one of the next wild steps in that story was that uh, after Aerosmith's manager died uh, Joe Perry came to me and and uh, I ended up signing Joe and I'm his manager today, which is another complete you know
0: well, another I mean, and, and now and now you're managing a member of Aerosmith, the the m- maybe one of the great guitar players of all time in rock and no, roll. No, maybe's. Yeah, he's, yeah.
1: You know, right, one of the last guitar heroes really left.
0: He's 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 certainly a, at 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 the height of, of rock and roll. So so now you're managing uh, uh, Joe. What what happens now?
1: What's interesting uh, before I go on with that was just that I was now learning from Joe. Because he'd say, you know what, Paul, I like to do this when I get off a plane or that. And I was like, you know what, that's great. You know, I I never had to do that for the other acts. And he had this, his own way of doing things. And and, uh, we've become very tight. And uh, I really saw, I would do that for nothing just because it's Aerosmith. And, you know, I grew up on that shit. And it's just unbelievable that it was the first band I ever saw. The first band I ever opened for on the major, uh, you know, Level and then later on, uh, other things happened along the way. But the other big step was actually taking on Joe's career and managing him. You know, really suck. So problem.
0: where do we take that? Where's that going?
1: Well, now that's interesting point because the the business has changed so much. Right, you know, it got to a point where. I stopped even going after all the things that I used to. I'm not even really chasing hit records. I don't care so much about that anymore. I'm, it's it's brand development. It's, you know, and even taking whoever it may be. So
0: define be. brand development for the, we, um, we know what a brand is, certainly, but define brand development as it relates to an artist.
1: Yeah, I mean, it used to be that um, you were developing hit records. You you would look, you know, you get something played on the radio, and then you would get your song at retail, and then that would translate from, you know, your cause and effect with radio records and then touring. But now that really doesn't exist as we know it um, from the past. I mean, yes, you have pop acts and you have what, what they do, but that's not what I do. It's not part of my world. So what I need to do is is learn about Platforms and what, what are the places where I can go So we're out. talking
0: social media now. Yes, yep. social
1: media. Is, well, mm-hmm. it's a big part of it. E-commerce,
0: on- social media, building an ecosystem around uh, exactly Joe Perry. Right. Is, that what we're, is that where we're taking this? Yep, so yep.
1: even Joe Perry, I find, is really underserviced in that regard and always has been. You know, like, I think jimmy page i mean by sheer magnitude with with uh led zeppelin and the fact that he was the guy mm-hmm. you know that, that developed and did all that you know remains that kingpin of guitar heroes but you know you see even what slash has been able to do over time and mm-hmm. slash is a so it's really about merchandising
0: the brand <laughs> in all these different directions and yep. uh and maximizing that from both a visibility and a revenue point of view. Is that the goal?
1: Yep. And we're bringing in new ideas. And the funny thing is, it's not even about revenue so much anymore. It's it's about legacy because, you know, Joe doesn't need money.
0: Right, right. You
1: know, and, and where he likes to make money because it's a measure See, of that's how hard for, doing.
0: that's hard for a lot of people to understand is that you, know, that you people like yourself, you reach a certain point. Uh, it's not just about the money anymore. It's mm-hmm. now about the legacy. And, and, uh, and that's an important part of the brand,
1: isn't it? Oh, it sure is. And it, listen, that's something I learned. I mean, Joe, he's now 71, you know, so I know um, that age, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, you know, more than 10 years younger than him. So, uh, I have, I still can learn from him because then you know look you get in a point in your life where you don't have anything to prove anymore you know you've been for myself a multi-platinum artist um a, a uh, successful manager managing multi-platinum artists both from the ground up and also signing successful artists like the Smashing Pumpkins or eventually even Joe Perry and then there's a new thing that comes around with, with your mind and body, and that's like, oh, what does success look like now? You know, and with that, for myself, it's good health. Uh, you know, I, I want to be healthy, so I'm eating better than I have in the past, and I, you know, want to be with my family. I want to be home now. I want to have time with my kids, and and all that. It takes on a whole new sort of your know, life takes on a new direction and now where it used to be i would sign as many big groups as i could bring in and bring success to the company nah now it's just like you know what i'll manage joe perry it's joe perry and and I've right, you want to do
0: what you want to do at this that's point that's
1: right you want you want to have a comfortable plate of work you know and and it really comes down to peace of mind and family you know well,
0: let's end on that note uh paul geary uh, first of all, a friend, most of all, and a really successful guy who's really done it from the bottom up. And uh, it's been a great story to listen to. I appreciate you uh, taking our inaugural flight here on Learning to Fly. And uh, thanks. And hopefully we'll have you back or maybe some of your groups. You can help us along, bring some of your fans uh, here.
1: Once you shift gears and go into the groupy uh, the groupie, uh-
0: well, that's, that's the next show. The groupie yeah. Show. We'll, we'll then, go into the groupie you know. show next. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, thanks, Paul Geary, and uh, thanks for listening to Learning to Fly. And uh, this is Bruce Mittman. Thank you, Bruce.